Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning, everyone. Hey, there you go. It's been a while since I've been up here, so I had to do that too. But uh, it is a nice day outside. It is a little cold. But uh, hopefully we can warm you up with some good worship here this morning. And uh, just some thoughtfulness today in worship. So uh, as we worship, sing as you like, stand as you like, um, or just sit and listen. So we just appreciate you here today. Thanks for coming online as well. Good morning to you in your pajamas. <laughs> but because uh, that's what I would be doing if I was at home. All right. Good morning.
souls. Bring new life in these cold days ahead. We just ask that you fill us up and warm us up with your light, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus, give me
Washington. 
Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. Hello, friends online. Hey, you know what? We haven't waved to them you know, very often. Can we just turn around and wave? Oh, they're already going to see me waving. Oh, wow. Would they try? <laughs> and Kelly. <laughs> we tried to wave to you folks. We welcome you, yes, as we get ready to take up our offering. Wow, can you believe this week is Thanksgiving? And you know what? We have so many things to be thankful for, don't we? Wow. So let me pray before we take up our offering. Lord, sometimes it's hard to believe that it's November already, almost the end of November. And Lord, reflecting back over the year, we have so many things to be grateful for and thankful Amen. for. Lord, mostly the movement that you've been doing in our congregation and in individual lives and in our hearts. Lord, through the teaching series this year, it's been a beautiful reminder of what gospel is. And Lord, I thank you for these folks. Lord, and I pray and thank you for the gifts that they offer, their service, their talents, and their money, Lord, that they give week in and week out. Lord, we ask you to bless it, that it can go beyond these four walls of Hosanna into our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can take up the offering. Well, it is going to be a happening place around here this week. As you know, Thursday, Hosanna is going to be hosting the free community Thanksgiving meal, which is a collection of all the churches in Lidditz serving and helping to feed folks. These folks may not have a place to go. They may be in need. They may just not feel like cooking on Thanksgiving Day. We want everybody to come. Last year, we fed over 1,300 people. Lots of people. That's through people coming into our auditorium, sitting down and eating, takeout meals, meals on wheels, folks that got meals delivered to them because they have no way to get to the church. And we figured we needed about close to 60 turkeys this year. And I'll tell you what, this year it felt like we were pulling teeth to get them. Pardon? Pulling teeth to get turkeys, yes. But you know what? And I, I was getting stressed, I'm gonna be honest, I was getting stressed out. Because it's like, okay, Monday we had 22 turkeys. That was it, we needed about 60. And I'm thinking, I started thinking, oh my gosh, what if we have to turn people away? That would break our hearts, right? It would break God's heart. And so I sent a couple emails out to the ministerium, and slowly but surely, turkeys started, well, turkeys started not coming in, but they were calling to say they're going to bring turkeys. These turkeys have to be cooked They're early Thursday morning, brought in here, and then the carvers start carving. Well, so far, we're up to 54 turkeys. <laughs> yes. But you know what? thank this Hosanna congregation because 23 of them are from you guys. And that is amazing from one church. So thank you, yes, on behalf of the ministerium, yes. Also, 
if that's not enough, <laughs> Jared has his annual use lock-in. <laughs> Always, the kids are up. Yeah, they're all back there excited. The lock-in goes from Friday night at 8 o'clock till Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. So if you think of Jared, pray for him. <laughs> I know what it's like to do a lock-in now, but he's got it down. He's done it for I don't know how many years now. But pray for Jared, pray for his volunteers, and pray for the youth. It's another way for them to come together and to build relationships. So that's happening this week, too. And don't forget to sign up for the Gingerbread Bash on Saturday, December 10th. You can sign up for that online. And sign up at the Welcome Center for Hosanna's Christmas Party on Sunday, December 11th. Remember that a very generous and kind donor, donors um, is paying for the Christmas party this year, which means that everyone can attend for free. And the, yes, yep. and the entertainment is going to be from character juggler Chris Ivey. And we've had Chris here before, and he's amazing. So sign up out at the Welcome Center. Now, you've been hearing about an announcement uh, probably the last month or so about group spiritual direction. And that that's going to be happening today. A demonstration is going to be happening over in the fellowship hall today after the service and online. So there's no adult class. But you may be wondering, so what is this? What is group spiritual direction? Well, I've been part of spiritual direction groups many, many times. And what it is, it's a simple process where a small group of people come together and they take turns sharing something from their lives. And then they're invited, this small group is invited to notice where God's showing up, where God's presence is. And the reason that we want to give you a demonstration of what group spiritual direction is, is because Hosanna is going to be starting some of these groups in the next year. We're excited about that. You know, this church has uh, probably over a dozen spiritual directors. And so these groups are going to be led by experienced spiritual directors. They're gonna be meeting once a month, and you're gonna to get to sit in a group of people who listen deeply. They listen deeply to you and to what God's doing in your life and sharing maybe the ups and downs of what's going on. And we want to demonstrate that to you this morning after the service over in the fellowship hall. So if you're interested in that, and I would encourage you, you know, to attend, just meet Joanne over there in the fellowship hall at 11.15. And with that, I'm going to invite Tony and Joanna to bring us the message. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> oh, got to go over here. I follow you. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> Good morning. It is cold. It is cold. Oh, I will see. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I've been doing a fence project at home and last Saturday I worked on it and worked up a sweat because it was summer and then yesterday I finished it or sort of finished it and I was freezing cold out there in the, in the late afternoon. Anyway, glad you're all here and for those of you that decided to chicken out and stay home and be warm today, <laughs> we still sort of glad you. you're here too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm going to start by first of all saying thanks to Jeff and Tasha Barley, who yeah. are, Jeff is speaking somewhere else today, so he's not able to be here, but they were, they gave our message last week, 
on breaking, shared some very, some of their personal story, got very vulnerable with us. We will never look at the game of shoots and ladders quite the same <laughs> again. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go check out last week's message. It was wonderful. We're glad to have, have them as part of our community right now. Okay, how about today? 401 years ago, at the end of the first harvest in their new home, the pilgrims sat down to eat the very first Thanksgiving meal in Plymouth. We don't know what it looked like. We don't know a whole lot about it, but it's one of those big stories of history. And when they got done, they loosened their belts and they watched football the rest of the day. It's in the historical records. After a very first, a very hard first year, they were grateful to be alive and to be growing their own food at last, thanks to the kindness of their neighbors who had taught them. Only 50 of them were left of the hundred who had made the courageous voyage across the Atlantic a year before. Mm. But when the feasting started, some of their Native American friends stopped by and they said, hey, come on in, join us. And then the news got around, I guess, because more and more came until instead of 50, there were 140 people gathered together, maybe like our community Thanksgiving meal, mm-hmm. for three days. Yeah. <laughs> this was the meal that went on for three days, fasting, <laughs> laughing, and thanking God. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons we love this story is because it's a, it's a, a wonderful way to start a country, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of course, it wasn't the, actually the very first Thanksgiving meal ever. It may have been actually the early Christians who did that. We spoke a couple weeks ago about their agape meal. It became known in Greek as Eucharisto, which means Thanksgiving. And what they were saying every time they came together for Thanksgiving meal like this is that we have regular reasons to be thankful together. And, of course, they, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like the pilgrims who went through hell and high water, literally high water, in order to be able to live in their new home. The journey of Christian discipleship has its challenges. But in the end, it's an opportunity to be thankful. It's an opportunity for blessing. And that's what we want to talk about today. This is the last message in our fairly long series on Gospels Discipleship. And today it's about how accepting the gifts and challenges of the journey of discipleship results in the blessing and the joy of being able to lead others in that journey as well. Because that's the invitation. It's not just for us. It's for us to extend to others. To do that, we're going to follow the biblical story of two women named Naomi and Ruth. They're going to help us illustrate this journey of discipleship. They were ordinary people in an ordinary place, dealing with a world over which they had very little control, a world that would bite them on occasion in some very painful ways. But they discovered, like many of us have, that they nonetheless had choices. They had invitations. And they had blessings in the middle of all that. And along the way, we're going to meet Boaz. Who had a little more control in his life, but he had the same choices and invitations and blessings. Yes. Let's see what, their, what wisdom their story offers us. I scrolled past my notes here. So, we'll start with Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It was famine that had led Jacob, the sons of Jacob, to Egypt in the story that Jeff and Tasha told us about last week. This is a common occurrence in the ancient world. People would have to leave their homes behind sometimes simply to find food to survive, go to a foreign country. So a certain man, Bethlehem, in Judah, 
Bethlehem. That sounds familiar. This time, a little town. He went to live in the country of Moab. In this case, they didn't go all the way to Egypt. They didn't cross the Atlantic. They just crossed the Jordan River. And it wasn't that far from home, but it was a very different culture, different language, different gods, different, different way of living. He and his wife and his two sons. Well, who are these people? The name of the man was Elimelech. Which Elimelech. I just thought of that now. That's what was in my head. In the forest, no, in the desert. In the jungle, the mighty jungle. The mighty Moab. The name of his wife, Naomi. The name, we, we promised we were going to get distracted today. But we're tired, and you know, it's kind of like overtired silliness. So you just never know what we're going to say. <laughs> then, the names of his two right, sons. True. <laughs> All right, we'll stop. <laughs> it's just the Bible you're interrupting here. <laughs> the, the names of his two sons were Malon and Killian. Mm-hmm. They were Ephrathites, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. From Ephrata. Yeah, actually, Ephrata is named after that. I think we're not the only ones that are tired. They're kind of carrying (laughs) on out there themselves. (laughs) It's Wisecrack Sunday. (laughs) Oh, don't, oh, no. Naomi's name, by the way, in a day when names had meanings, (laughs) Naomi's name meant sweet or pleasant. Mm -hmm. The name would often tell us something about the person. So... It means that she's probably fairly content with her life. She's a happy wife and mother. Well, they had to go. They went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. They attended a temporary stay, much like Joseph. Or, well, Joseph did. He was taken to slavery. But you know, Jacob, uh, Jacob's sons, the rest of his brothers, they all came intending just to buy food and go back home, and they ended up staying. Same thing happens to these guys. We're going to hang out here for a little bit. When the famine is over, we'll go back home. But they settled in, and they never returned home. And then, and then, ordinary life happened. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Again, a common occurrence in the ancient world, but not an easy one. She carries her grief and her responsibilities, and she's alone, at least without her family, in a foreign land. These two boys that she's raising, however, this land is not foreign to them anymore. They were raised there. They speak the language now. They know the people. They know the girls. (laughs) And it says, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah. And the name of the other was Ruth. Mm -hmm. Now, the point is, if we would take out the place names and change a couple of unfamiliar personal names and talk about a job relocation rather than a famine relocation, mm-hmm. this, this story might sound like some of ours. People live and they love and they eat and they die. And we often feel rather powerless in the world, so we do what we can and hope it works out well in the end. So maybe we too can be sweet and pleasant in the small joys of life problem is it becomes very easy to merely sleepwalk through our lives to just go through the motions here's another day I'll do what I'm doing and here's another day I'll do what I'm doing not noticing everything else that is going on around us we can actually miss our own lives we can wake up some one day and say oh my goodness I never really engaged I never really was part of that unless something comes along and does wake us up 
wakes us up to what is really real, what is really real about ourselves and what's real about the world and what's real about God. And maybe then we can start living for real. So that's one of the primary invitations of this story. This story has multiple invitations to be awake, to yeah. wake up, yeah. to see what's really real. Yeah, and as Tony said, what often what wakes us up are unwanted, often painful circumstances that come into our lives which have the potential to move us on in the journey of discipleship or to keep us stuck. See, it all depends on how we choose to respond. So 10 years after Elimelech's death, both of Naomi's sons, Malan and Killian, died. And they left her, yeah, Elimelech's death had left her a widow in a culture where women's lives were dependent on husbands and sons. And Naomi loses everything. She loses the husband about 10 years before, but then she loses her sons. And so do her daughters-in-law, Ruth and, and Orpah. The younger women were not only widows, but they were widows who had not birthed any children. And in that culture, barren women, lowest on the totem pole you know, for men considering marriage. They didn't have a lot of prospects, in other words. So although they had little hope for the future, they still had difficult decisions to make in the midst of those circumstances. So Naomi could live a destitute life in Moab, or she could try to travel alone back to family and friends in Bethlehem, even though she might and likely would end up dead along the way at her age and in the conditions, the traveling conditions of the time. And she decides to go home anyway. That decision meant that now the younger women must make a decision. They've gotta make a decision to cling to the little that they have in their own homeland, or to risk going with Naomi to a new land. You know, they, they needed to make a decision about whether they were gonna risk staying within the familiar boundaries of life as they knew it, or risk stretching past those limits into the life that lies in the unknown land. Were they going to leave old idols, old little g-gods behind in order to go find the true God who was waiting for them there? They had decisions to make. And you know, at some point in our lives, maybe right now, each of us face similar choices about whether we're going to keep settling for the status quo for the old gods, little g, or whether we're gonna let go of life as usual and follow the true God. See, we face similar decisions about what it could mean to stop living in compliance with other people's expectations all the time and maybe take a chance on following God's invitation regardless of what anyone else says or does. That gives us a feel, this much of a feel for what they were facing. Naomi decides to leave Moab. She's preferring to risk the danger of journeying again with, the God, with God into the more that may be possible in the future. See, she did that once before. She's been there, done that, came from Bethlehem to Moab, and God was faithful. And she'd rather trust God again 
than go through the motions of living in the past in Moab. So this is a defining moment, not only for Naomi, but because of Naomi's decision, all three women's lives will change forever. And again, all of us have and will experience moments like this too, defining moments where the future is changed for us and for others by one single choice. Have you been there? I've been there. We've all been there, big and small ways. You know, and though these women never knew it in their earthly lifetimes, the future of the world would also be changed by their choices. After all, this is the family that God would enter the world through. This is the family the Messiah would be birthed through. See, not only their deliverance, but the, the deliverance of the whole world is at play in that moment in those decisions. See, if only we could realize, wake up and realize that God's often doing far bigger things than we can even imagine through our decisions than we can see in any given moment. Do we get to see things in hindsight? Very rarely do we get to see the effect into the future, right? So if we could only wake up and realize our decisions matter, then you know what we might do? We might gladly open our eyes and see what we can see right now. And then open our hearts to sense love's nudges because love is God. Love's nudges in every, every moment. Because you know, that's the way that the God who is love is often leading us. If we're gonna wait for a plan, they had no one who was gonna lay a plan out for them. They were not living in circumstances like we do where we can actually have a little bit of control over things. They had nothing. They'd lost everything. So wake up, see what you can see, know what you can know, and let God lead you through your heart. See, being awake is only the beginning. It's not until we allow ourselves, next invitation, to be broken, that we actually become free enough to not only see and sense what's really real, see, but really become really real ourselves. Naomi loved God. She had trusted God enough to leave home and move to Moab in the first place. And times were really good there for years. And at this point in her story, as an older woman, widow, she still trusts God. When things are worse than they'd ever been before. Okay, so she trusts God, she loves God, but that doesn't mean she likes the circumstances. She doesn't. In fact, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she is brutally honest with the women there who greet her. The women said, it says in Ruth 1.19, the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, call me no longer Naomi. Like Tony just said, the name means pleasant or sweet. Don't call me pleasant, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Listen to what she's saying. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me? 
and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. Ever feel like that? Yes. <laughs> and she has the guts because she's been broken wide open. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. She's being really real. She loves God. She trusts God. But right now, she's not real happy with what she thinks God's done. I just said she's mad at him. Yeah. And gives us permission. See, Naomi shows us that loving God does not mean putting on some fat, fake plastic smile when you've been devastated. I know, I love that picture. Right? It doesn't mean stuffing all the pain into your body and making yourself sick. See, loving God in really hard times doesn't mean that you, you need to devise some sappy, stupid, simplistic answers to unanswerable hard questions. It doesn't mean that you need to grit your teeth and do nothing until all the things are going get, to get better on their own, until you just become passive in your own life. No. And we Christians can be such pretenders, can't we? Especially when things are hard. Maybe because we don't want anyone to know that, that life isn't working out perfectly for us. Or maybe we fear being harshly judged or rejected or maybe having to defend ourselves or maybe having to defend a God that we're mad at. Been there? I have. See, but nowhere does the Bible teach that God's people are exempt from difficulty. In fact, Jesus again and again made sure that we understand that we would have trials and tribulations in this world, that we would be treated as he was treated. Why we're surprised, I don't know. But the thing about living at the time that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz did is they weren't surprised when hard things happened. See, Naomi shows us that when life breaks us wide open, if we will risk being really real with God, God will be really real with us. And God will show us that he's big enough to take all our messy emotions. That we don't have to stuff them or hide them. We can give them and show them to him. We don't have to, that he's big enough for our hard questions. He's big enough for our genuine doubts. And listen, folks. He is big enough to know that sometimes we have to push against him. That's what Naomi's doing, pushing against him, pushing against God. Why? Because when we take the risk to do that and wrestle like Jacob did, when we take the risk to push hard against God, you know what? It shows us just how big and how strong and how compassionate God really is. And it also shows us that that kind of wrestling is actually what causes our faith to go, grow stronger, like muscles do, in all the broken places. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it includes these kind of emotions, these kind of things. If the point was that we're never supposed to push back against God, it seems like somebody would have edited out right. this stuff in the book of Ruth and got the book of Job pushed entirely out of the Bible and eliminated a third of the Psalms or something. It's, and it's taken Job out and taken Jeremiah out and taken out most of the Bible. Yes. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. The fact that it's in there is, I think, sort of an invitation. We find ourselves in those emotions, in those words, and we say, yeah, that's my experience too. And okay, there wouldn't get been Gethsemane that? either. I'm sorry? There wouldn't have been Gethsemane or a cross either. Yes. Well, something incredible now happens in our story. In the middle of all this brokenness, in the middle of these choices, 
Naomi's decision in her brokenness gives Ruth a clear choice. Should I stay or should I go? We were doing the... uh, a song. <laughs> yeah, I know, now I'm hearing the clash in my head. Uh, should I stay or should I go? <laughs> a wing a lop. Uh, Orpah, her sister-in-law, chooses to stay. And Naomi encourages Ruth to do the same. Here's where it says from Scripture. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Gone back means that they probably walked her maybe to the edge of Moab or something. And, uh, and uh, this is the point of we either go forward or you go back. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, to the way things were, the way things she had always known, to where it was comfortable. Do the same thing. Return after your sister-in-law. Catch up. She can't be too far down the road. Ruth said in one of the most incredible statements that we do find in Scripture, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. I use this sometimes in wedding ceremonies. It's not a vow between a husband and wife, but wow, it's powerful, isn't it, in terms of relationship. And when Naomi saw that, she, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Okay, come on. <laughs> so what's happened here? On the road to Bethlehem, Ruth gives her devotion to Naomi and to Naomi's God, who becomes her God. It's there in her words. It's her choice. And in that moment, Ruth is transformed. Something has changed in her. Her identity is changing as all of us are in the moment when we give our lives to the Lord. Ruth said no to her past, no to her false gods. And she said yes to the God inviting her to a new life. And she said less to the woman that was introducing that new, even in her brokenness, Naomi was somebody that was worth following. It sounds very much like what would happen centuries later when another young woman would say yes to God and follow another road to Bethlehem to give birth to Ruth's descendant. Yes. But again, we're getting ahead of the story. <laughs> Ruth has followed the Moabite rules, the, the rules of her world up to this point. But through the influence of Naomi in her life, Ruth has come awake. The old life is no longer good enough for her. That old life was too small of a box to hold Ruth anymore. Too small to hold the mystery of the God who loved her. So she came out of her box. She gave her life to the box-breaking God. It was inviting her to be her fullest self. To not listen to the voices of people who think she's lost her mind. What are you doing, Ruth? To not even look at the shaking head of her mother-in-law who doesn't want her to waste her life. To not pay attention to those old fears inside of herself that tell her to, 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 to step back, play it safe. Yeah. To not surrender her life to the normal human rules, but to break those life-defying rules, those life-denying rules, in order to follow God into a new identity and a new life. This is one powerful woman. But you know what? It wasn't magic. She had a choice to make, to cooperate with God's grace, to not only make the hard decision, but also to live it out then by 
letting everything go. Let it go, let it go. <laughs> By leaving it all behind. We should have just populated let this with different psalms along the way. Here. But she had to let it go. She had to leave everything behind to take the risk of moving into an uncertain future. And she does it. It's not just one choice. When she gets to Bethlehem, she acts out of her choice. She follows through. She volunteers to go to the fields and glean wheat so they can eat. Even though it's dangerous for a young woman to be out there in the fields. Particularly not knowing anybody. She defers to Naomi, not just as her elder, but as the one who knows the ways of this new world better than she does. It's Naomi's home. It's going to become Ruth, but right now it's not. And Naomi knows better, and she follows her lead. She joins this new community. She lives a new life. And the point of this story is that this is the same invitation to, uh, given to all of us in our journey of discipleship. To break out of that box, to come home to yourself, to become yourself, your truest self in Christ. Yes. After we're broken, we have the opportunity to shuck off the false self and the false stories, the false presentations that we've made, the ways that we've tried to fake it in the world in order to cover up what? Whatever is in here that we don't want people to see, our shame and our fear. Yeah. It takes guts to do it, but it's worth it. I look out around, around the room here, and those of you in line, we know some of you very well and see some of the courage that some of you have lived out and letting go of those old stories and letting go of those old, um, the old self, the old way that you used to be, to embrace something new, even though it was hard, even though it was difficult, even though it scared the daylights out of you. And I congratulate all of you who are living as a new you, as the real you, the you that you were created to be, or at least living into that, becoming that. Yeah. Now, a word of caution. This doesn't mean that we're suddenly perfect. <laughs> we're fully healed, fully changed, that we have to pretend as if we are. And uh, Joanne was right about that. You see so many... Uh, it happens in churches and places where Christians come together that you, you put on the fake smile and, oh, I'm living in victory. Well, yay if you're feeling victory. But you know, some days you aren't. Mm -hmm. Some days we are all Naomi. Yep. I think God's been picking on me and I'm sick and tired of it. <laughs> yes. What do we do with that? Yeah. So we recognize that we bring something forward from that brokenness into our new life. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that we do. Ruth would have had an accent the rest of her life. A reminder that she had come from somewhere else through brokenness and hard choice. Yep. Jacob in the Bible, remember him? He had a change of identity as well, even a change of name. He had this big defining moment in his life and he had to make a choice, but it only came after wrestling all night with an angel. And we may not fully understand what that story meant, but he walked away with a limp. And a new life, new life and a new name. We are Jacob. We all walk with a limp, a mark of our struggle, a reminder of our weakness, an opportunity to not fake it, an opportunity to remain honest and real in our new lives. Those who have come to know themselves and those who see themselves clearly, limps and all, can live authentic lives with everyone else who limps. Don't be afraid of your limp. Yes. Oh, and by the way, don't be afraid of others who have one too, even if they're leaders. We all have uh -huh. 
the question is, what do we do with that? How authentic will we be with that yeah. when we're living with one another? Yeah, and I think we've come to a place where we don't trust leaders unless they've been broken. Because you're not really safe. You're like Simba in The Lion King. Yep. Another song. We need a soundtrack for this one. <laughs> I can't wait to be king. I can tell people to do this and do that right now. Immature. Baby. So we're all like li little lion cubs, you know, when we start out. But if we're going to lead the way Christ led and leads, man, we've got to be broken. So we need to be looking for limps mm -hmm. because those limps, we need to follow the limping ones. And as somebody who stands up in front of you on a fairly regular basis and has a role of leadership, I ask, I, I need the grace to be able to walk with my own limp. I'm not fully healed yet. I'm not fully, fully everything that I am to be yet. That reminder that is there and to be real in front of me really matters. Yeah. Let's give each other that grace. Exactly. And that's the point. That's the next part of this process is, you know, this kind of not only individual personal relationship with God and, each, and friends, family, but this kind of shared, compassionate, communal relationship happens as we learn that we need each other because we all limp in one way or another. See, this happens, this, this kind of, of shared love happens by experiencing for ourselves just how limited and vulnerable we are on our own and how together, no matter how challenging or hard the circumstances may be, we really can together share abundant and secure life with God and with God's people in a world that is very much uncertain and that is real, this really does describe the world that we're living in right now, doesn't it? But again, it doesn't happen automatically. This kind of, of shared love relationship, um, it happens over time um, as we are and as we remain committed to each other. All right, that's the next, to be committed. This is hard in a world where commitments more and more just seem like they don't matter at all. They only matter, a commitment only matters for as long as it takes us and what it offers us, and the minute it's not giving us anything, we can cut and run. For the next 20 minutes at least, I am really into this. You're really into this? Oh, I commitment. see, sorry. <laughs> I don't always get his humor, but okay. I get it now. <laughs> so Ruth, chose to commit to Naomi. That's what Tony was just describing so beautifully for us. She, she committed to Naomi and to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God and to Naomi's welfare. See, caring for Naomi became Ruth's highest priority. And what does that do? It reveals that for Ruth, personal faith in God for her own well-being was not enough. Can we say that enough, Christians and, and uh, body of Christ in America? Personal faith in Jesus is necessary. But personal faith in Jesus in order to get what I want for my own well-being is absolutely not enough. For Ruth, her genuine inter, inner relationship was, with God was shown through her actions, especially toward Naomi. 
Discipleship begins and continues, yes, with personal conversion by faith through grace and growing in loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, strength, our whole selves. That's how it starts. But in order for that faith, that discipleship to become mature, disciples must also keep Jesus' second great commandment. You just can't stop with the first one. He gave two. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, as Ruth demonstrates, this love is lived out in our commitments, our commitments to God and to our neighbors and, yes, to ourselves. See, the book of Ruth uses a very common Hebrew word to describe this, this committed love. It's, it's the word hesed. There's no English word like it. It's often translated in the scriptures as loving kindness, right? Hesed, it's a covenant word. And it's a word, it's blending together love and mercy, grace and goodness, loyalty and devotion. Um, writer Paul Miller says, Hesed is one-way love. Love without an exit strategy. Your response to the person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. The love that will not let us go. Right? The love that won't let us let others go. It's God, first and foremost. God has said love. It's God being completely for us, regardless of anything that we can ever do for God. So at the beginning of the story, you know, Naomi uses this word, has said, when she prays for her daughters-in-law to receive the Lord's kindness. That's the word has said. God created us to live in, has said to dwell in his love, to thrive on his care to recognize our limited, God-given limitations, our limited humanness, to be willing to look at our limbs, because even so, we dwell in the love and in the care and the loving kindness of the one who is always there and will never leave or forsake us. See, for God and for God's people, hesed is not something that's merely felt. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. Hesed is something that's done. God offers hesed to us, right, in large and small ways. And we become, we become God's hesed when we offer kindness and mercy and love and tender care to one another, to our neighbor as ourselves. And when we're able to receive it as well, because that's hard too. Jeremiah assures us God's hesed, God's mercies, never run out. Even when we're in a Naomi or a Ruth moment and feeling like, my gosh, like, like Naomi was, your hesed seems to have run out at this moment. I feel like you don't love me anymore. I feel like you've abandoned me. You've mistreated me. But remember, feelings aren't facts. Feelings aren't facts. And God is faithful even when we aren't, even when we don't feel like he is. God is committed to us. And God longs for us to be and stay committed to him and to each other no matter what. Ruth's commitment to Naomi is a picture of God's commitment to each of us. 
She did, Ruth did whatever she had to do, including lots of hard, hard work in order to provide for Naomi's needs. Just as God was willing to do what he needed to do, including suffering and dying for us in order to provide for our greatest needs, and you know what, he's still doing that. And we'll never stop. And Naomi was committed to Ruth as well, in return, mutuality. She tried to send, as Tony said, she tried to send Ruth back to Moab. Why? Because she wanted what was best for her, because she loved Ruth, and Ruth refused because she loved Naomi. And after being in Bethlehem for a while, with Ruth providing for her needs, Naomi decides it's time to provide for Ruth. And she says in verse three, chapter, uh, chapter three, verse one, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Beautiful stuff, do you see it? Naomi comes up with a plan for Ruth to marry one of Elimelech's relatives. Boaz. Here's a man that Naomi believes will love and value Ruth as much as she does. And more about that in a minute. Just notice now that there's something of God in Ruth's commitment to Naomi and in Naomi's commitment to Ruth and in their shared willingness to do whatever it takes to follow God's heart of love and to trust that even when it doesn't feel like it, nothing is impossible with him. So far, this story has been one of continual invitation. Mm -hmm. Invitations from God, of course, to be awake and be broken and be, the, be ourselves and be committed. But also invitations from each other. If you think about it, Naomi had lived in Moab in such a way that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, saw and respected who she was and followed her. There's all sorts of jokes <laughs> in our culture about mothers-in-laws. Um, it's awesome to have this kind of different experience, isn't it? that Ruth looked at her and said, I don't care, even when you're broken open, Naomi, you're the kind of person I'd rather be with. And then Ruth lives in Bethlehem in such a way that people saw and respected who she was and started looking out for her and inviting her into things, and especially this guy named Boaz, who was Boaz, a relative of Elimelech, uh, an older landowner, somebody that did have a little more security, that was male in a male-oriented society. He had lived in Bethlehem in such a way that people, including Naomi, saw and respected who he was mm -hmm. and trusted him and his invitations. So what happens? Well, most of us know the rest of the story. Boaz invites this young widow, the foreign woman, Ruth, and through her, the grieving Naomi, to be his family. He goes to the city gate in front of the elders of Bethlehem and he announces it all publicly. It's a great little speech. He says to everybody, I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Malon. By the way, he didn't necessarily have to buy it from them, but he's honoring because of the family connections here. But he's honoring Naomi. I am also taking Ruth, the Moabite, who is the wife of Malon, as my wife. I am doing this so her dead husband's property will stay in his name, and his name will not be separated from his family and his hometown. Yeah. And you all are witnesses today. This was the marriage ceremony. <laughs> so Boaz took Ruth home as his wife. There's an awful lot embedded in that yeah. about how their, their culture and the way that they did things back then. 
but you see the invitation there and the commitment that is present in Boaz as he looks upon this, this, these two widows, one older, one younger, and says, you are family. You are already family. And I will honor that commitment and I will invite you into my home and we can be family if, for, mm-hmm. for, for real in, in, in an intimate sense. You see, the invitation to discipleship and the invitation to a new and transformed life, see, that's not just for us. We're not just the recipients of the invitation. Through our lives and our words, we also get to invite others into the same journey. And part of the reason I'm rather passionate about this part of this this morning is because American Christianity is very consumerist. Consumer. We, we rent it for what we get out of it, as Joanne was saying earlier. It's an early stage of faith. It's, it's maybe a place to start. Jesus, what have you done for me? God, what are you going to do for me? And we, we engage it, but it can remain very transactional. And many Christians never get beyond the transaction. And they never get beyond feed me, take care of me, and recognize that, that what we have been given is so that we can invite others into it. And then flaunting what they've been given, if they've been given lots, flaunting it in the face of those who don't have much. Yeah. Saying, look, God loves me more than you. Yeah. It's a part of the journey. Part of the reason we're talking, finishing this series was this thing on leading is that everyone in, in the end is a follower. We all follow somebody. But everyone is also a leader, yeah. whether we intend to be or not. People follow. People watch us. People see and they make choices based upon how we live in front of them. So to be a follower of Jesus and the journey of discipleship is also to be a leader. Yep. So be inviting others. That's the fifth invitation here. Be inviting others yeah. to come along for the same journey. With your words, yes. With your lives, mostly. Live in such a way that garners respect like Naomi did, like Boaz did, like Ruth did. Garners respect for your own hard choices to come alive, for your own authenticity. Live in such a way that invites people to be inspired by you and want to follow your example. I didn't have this in my notes here, but I remember um, Peter in one of his letters says, live such good lives among the pagans that they will want to see, they will want to do what you do. They want to have the faith that you have. The Apostle Paul was pretty explicit about it, actually. He was, he didn't, he was not low on self-esteem. Uh, but the people in his life, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Yes. I'm following after him. Come join. Join this followership. Come follow belong behind me because Christ is in front. And by the way, Paul had his limp, of course. So don't use yours as an excuse. Or, as I said earlier, or anyone else's limp either. He was not inviting people to follow him, but to become, or not, not inviting people to become him, but to become themselves. So here are some hard questions for us. Mm-hmm. How is your own life inviting people to follow you as you follow Christ? Yeah. Who might be saying, wow, I want to hang out with you guys. Am I invited? If so, your people will become my people and your God will become my God. Yes. Is there anyone in your life who might be prepared to say that if the invitation were present? Mm-hmm. Let's invite them through our lives and words to join the journey because... No matter where we may be on this journey of discipleship, 
it is beginning to end a journey of blessing. And yes, of course, because we experience God in so many ways inviting us to be blessed, yes, we know that part. It is a journey of blessing in both our following and our leading. Yet the more mature we become on this journey, the more we experience that being personally or even communally blessed is not enough. There's so much more, and there's so much more at stake. At the beginning of the biblical story in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that he's going to bless Abraham's family line so that all people will be blessed. And God did bless them. God blessed them to be a blessing to the whole world. See, being blessed is great, but even greater is choosing to become God's blessing to others right now in this time, in this lifetime in which we live, but also for generations to come. That we live in a way that even perhaps we may die not seeing the full dream fulfilled, our full potential fulfilled even, but we've lived in a way that on the other side, we're going to look back and see, wow, God was using me and I didn't know it. Right? Generation after generation after generation, we can live in a way in which we are a blessing to great-grandchildren, maybe even to the whole world. You just never know. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz didn't know. They were blessed, but they had no idea the part that they were playing in the greatest story of blessing that ever has occurred. They didn't know what part they were playing in salvation history. Let's read from the story. Boaz, this is chapter 4. Boaz married Ruth, and the Lord blessed her, the barren woman with a son. After his birth, the women said, again, the women are talking to Naomi, praise the Lord, today he's given you a grandson to take care of you. And do you hear that? That is a blessing that she's received. But then they turn and they bless the baby. We pray that the boy will grow up to be famous everywhere in Israel. He will make you happy and take care of you in your old age because he's the son of your daughter-in-law and she loves you more than seven sons of your own would love you. It's all about love and what love looks like in following and in leading and in blessing. Um, Naomi loved the boy and took good care of him. I bet she did. The neighborhood women named him Obed, but they called him Naomi's boy. When Obed grew up, he had a son named Jesse who later became the father of King David. And all of this happened because a few people chose to follow God and ended up as leaders among God's people, simply because they chose to love God with their whole selves, their whole lives, and to love each other and their neighbors as themselves. And please notice that this journey of blessing happened because they had faith that colored outside the lines. They had faith that was willing to break rules that God wanted broken like the rule that said that men named babies. And along comes Ruth baby, Ruth baby and the women name that baby, Obed. The men oh. would have named him Baba. Baba. That's, like a, that's a little rule that was broken, but here's the big one. 
How about the rule that might have kept Boaz from marrying Ruth in the first place? Deuteronomy 23.3 says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. Interesting. David was a third generation descendant of Moabite Ruth. God broke his own rules. God sent Samuel to anoint David king of Israel. And God came into the world through that family line in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. Through the line of the people who weren't supposed to be able to do that. You want to break some rules, folks? That's what we do here. <laughs> Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz blessed not only their own lives and community, but all the generations to come, including ours. So where are you in this process of being a follower and a leader. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning and how will you respond? Throughout this series, we've been closing it and we didn't plan on it, it just developed that way. So we're gonna end the way we've begun and uh, we've closed each service with an invitation to briefly engage in a prayer of examen. And we're gonna do so one last time. So this is an opportunity to slow down as we've been reflecting on this beautiful story um, from the Bible, this journey of these three rule breakers. Slow down, maybe you wanna close your eyes so you can reflect on your own journey of discipleship. Just take a deep breath. Become aware of God's presence in you, with you. And we're, I'm going to offer you a few questions for you to look back with God over your journey. How have you awakened to life and to God? And are you willing for God to wake you up even more? What experiences of brokenness have you had? We're just, I'm just gonna give you the questions and then give you a little time. Just notice which one of these is really drawing you. Do you wanna be more awake? What experiences of brokenness have you had? Are you willing to be honest with God about how you feel? Even as you also keep trusting. How have you become more fully your God-created self along the way because of the brokenness? What gifts of commitment, what has said, have you received and given? With God, with yourself, with others? What blessings has God given you? Is God given you? on the journey. And how will you respond to God's blessing by becoming his blessing? His has said, wherever you go, with whomever you meet, and inviting others to join you on the journey. Just take a few minutes and listen. What is the Holy Spirit wanting you to know this morning, and what choices do you want to make?
-hmm. you may want to take some of those questions home with you. Yeah. Every day is another opportunity to invite people into the journey of discipleship. But this week mm -hmm. especially. Let's watch this video. Look, I, I booked these tickets weeks ago. How does this happen? Sir, we have a lot of factors going on, and besides that, I can't... What about another flight? I'll, I'll take a red-eye or an early morning flight. Sir, as I've explained, there is nothing else available. What's your name again? Judy. Judy. Judy, there has to be ways around this. Sir, I've already told you. We checked the schedule, scoured the schedule. The flight time, to get sir, there is nothing home. left. Can I, can I talk to your supervisor? I know, I know there's someone above you. I don't mean that disrespectful. There has to be someone above you. Can I speak to that person? I sat on this phone. I sat on this phone for an hour and a sir, half. Sir, you're in luck. You're talking to the supervisor. You're the supervisor. Then okay. Then okay. Are you, are you close to your mom, Judy? I don't feel comfortable discussing my family with you. I didn't mean it that way. I'm just saying, Judy, I, I have to get home. I have to. My mom, okay? My mom. My mom has had the roughest year, and I have to get home. Judy. I, sir, I realize this is an incredible inconvenience for you, but there is nothing we can do. So you're saying I'm spending Thanksgiving alone? That's what you're saying. That's what there? Is that what you're saying? That I'm spending Thanksgiving alone? Just say it. Say it for me. That I'm spending Thanksgiving alone. There's nothing you can do. With all due respect, sir, you are not the only person spending Thanksgiving alone. to take a late nap. No problem. You want to give them the flowers? Yeah, these are for me. Thank you for having oh, us. No. Uh, make yourself at home. Great, thanks. Okay. Oh. Hi. Hi. Oh, wow. You brought... This is so great. Hello. Welcome. Oh, you got pizza. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Oh, they're hot, too. Hi. What'd you just say? I'm sorry, but what I said is that you're not the only person alone this Thanksgiving. 
So, how long does it take to cook a turkey? Of all the blessings in this journey of discipleship, perhaps the most meaningful is the blessing of belonging. Yep. Belonging to the God who created us and hold us in love and belonging to a spiritual family which we're, we're seen and we're cared for. Belonging to the Savior who is the welcome and the way home for us all. Yep. So this Thanksgiving week, we uh, send you off with a blessing. A blessing for Ruth and Naomi and for us. A poem from Jan Richardson. And the table, how big is your table? The video asked. And the table will be wide. And the welcome will be wide. And the arms will open wide to gather us in. And our hearts will open wide to receive. And we will come as children who trust there is enough. And we will come unhindered and free. And our aching will be met with bread. And our sorrow will be met with wine. And we will open our hands to the feast without shame. And we will turn toward each other without fear. And we will give up our appetite for despair. And we will taste and know delight. And we will become bread for a hungering world. And we will become drink for those who thirst. And the blessed will become the blessing. And everywhere will be the feast. Yes. May it be so. That's what God has in mind. Yeah. Everywhere, every day, everyone will be the feast in God's kingdom. Yes. Because leading as mature disciples means loving like Jesus at always, at all times, and with all people. And this is gospel. Yes. Every day but particularly this week, yep. particularly this Thursday, particularly here at our community Thanksgiving meal. It's going to look like that video. Yep. Our table here is very, very big. Come join us alone or with some others that you invite along. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>